Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Uh, begin here. I want to uh, say a prayer for us. Um, what I will tell you is, I think understanding the section that we're going to be looking at today is probably the most critical passage to understand as a believer um, in, in helping us to understand how we live out the grace that we have, how we live out uh, our lives in faith. And so I'm going to be sharing um, some very personal things with you today. Uh, and, and my reason for doing that is simply, uh, as Paul has done, to kind of help illustrate and and uh, perhaps help us to grasp what it is that Paul is saying. So uh, I simply want us to, uh, uh, you know, as you guys know, I've been gone all week, so it, I kind of feel like I'm in farm show mode. I'm ready to shake hands and then put sanitizer on my hands. So. Uh, so let's pause for a minute, let's pray, uh, let's ask for God's grace specifically in this passage. Father, we want to uh, just calm ourselves before you. God, ask for your grace that our hearts might see what it is that you are sharing with us. Uh, Father, I pray that um, you might allow us to deal honestly with ourselves, to think clearly, um, God, thank you for your gentleness as you, as you seek to minister to us, uh, as you have justified us, as you are seeking to change us from the inside out. God, I do, uh, I praise you, uh, not because uh, we have done anything great, but in our weakness, you have uh, found ways uh, to show your glory, to reveal your righteousness to the world around us. Father, help us to understand. Give us the aid of your spirit as we open up this passage. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, kind of going back to our, our original chart here for a minute because I, um, I, I think at times there is a, a bit of uh, confusion as how best to understand this passage. And if you remember back to when Mark was preaching on this, he kind of alluded to, I was in the third service, I guess we would have been in, um, and he was talking about the fact that uh, he and Michael DeFazio had talked at some point, uh, and he shared a, uh, Michael's thoughts as far as what he thought this passage was about. Now, obviously, I, I don't know what Mark said maybe in the first service or the second service that would have been different, but I think it comes back to two central Ideas. The one is, is this passage, when it talks about sin, as Paul has had this huge lead-up from chapter 1 all the way through uh, chapter 7, verse 6, and he has been talking about the idea that what is at stake is our positional standing with God. Uh, and Paul has spent quite a bit of time helping us to understand that although although... God views us as wicked and we stand condemned, through faith we can actually be counted as righteous in the eyes of God. And that's what we refer to when we're talking about our positional standing. Uh, even though 
our very actions are wicked, God will view us as righteous because of the covenant that he has made and Jesus Christ has fulfilled. And uh, what Mark commented on uh, during the sermon was basically that Michael had said, you know, this is kind of what Paul was alluding to. Even though he's very personal in this section, uses a lot of personal pronouns, uh, he's dealing with this, and I think Michael is right. Uh, but I think the other, which is the more traditional understanding of this, which is the more personal uh, understanding of this, uh, is how do we as wicked human beings who are weighed down with sin act righteously? Uh, so this would be justification, right? Uh, this is the, the, the positional part of salvation, we might also say that this deals with the penalty of sin, as we've talked about. And this is what we call sanctification, which is the process where we are being moved uh, from sinning all the time and being slaves to sin to sinning less. Uh, and this is what we talk about as dealing with the power of sin uh, in our lives. So, I want to set that up at the beginning because I think both are true. And here's why I think both are true. If we understand this, and this is, in my opinion, this is Paul's point throughout this. If we understand this, if we understand our position in God, it helps us then to live out that reality. Uh, chapter 6, going back to chapter 6. Paul says, don't you realize that when you were baptized, you were placed into the death of Jesus. That's positional. God views us as having been placed into the death of Jesus. But then he goes on and he says the ramifications of that is you are now no longer slaves to sin. You died to sin, and therefore you can live a new life. So I think both are true. One affects our thinking, and one affects the everyday life that we live. Now, uh, let, let's put some, some flesh on that, okay? That's kind of the theoretical understanding of this passage, but let's put some flesh on that. So I want you to, in your mind, you don't need to write anything down, but I want you to think of a sin, uh, and by this I'm going to describe that as a symptom of original sin. Something that you have struggled with off and on, and it might be several things. If you're like me, uh, I could build this and that and probably write, you know. I mean, there are several things. So, think about that. And as we go through today, I want you to have that in the forefront of your mind. Because what I think Paul is doing in this section is he wants us to be mindful of the symptoms of our depraved nature, our sin nature. But what he's really talking about is our sin nature. The fact that we have this bent towards sinning. Remember the, the broken Walmart cart, right? That's how we are. Okay, so I have told you before that I have, throughout really my entire life, struggled with significance. And so I've never really uh, dealt, I mean, I've dealt into this with other people, but I'm going to kind of share with you what I mean by that. And then how that single issue has caused uh, other symptomatic sins. Okay, so this underlying uh, issue of struggling with significance, I would tell you started, you know, when I was pretty young. 
uh, my father was a loving man. He was a good man, decent man. But uh, I can tell you some stories of how he was raised, and you would understand. Well, he, he is a lot different. Uh, I'll, I'll tell one story. Uh, he was told, he grew up on a farm. He was told by my grandfather, he and his brother, older brother, to go out and pick up some hay, uh, put it on a wagon, use the horses to bring it into the barn. This was free hay, so they're uh, not free. Uh, it wasn't baled in any way. It just had been cut down, so they had to rake it all up, pick it up, put it on a wagon, and then haul it into the barn. Well, it was hot that day. They decided that they were going to go swimming instead. And so when my granddad got home, the hay wasn't put up. My grandfather's way of dealing with that is he shot my the oldest uncle in the leg uh, with a low low 22. Uh, and my, my father got a pretty severe spanking. And he said, now you can go do it. Uh, and, and I mean, he, I don't want you to think my uncle died or anything like that. My grandfather was a pretty harsh man. So, my dad then, you know, at, at transfer forward, I don't know, 34, 35 years, something like that. Now he's dealing with me. He had three older girls to deal with first, then he had me. Uh, and I never felt like I could measure up to what he wanted me to do. If we were working on a car and I said, you know, I'm going to do this, well, why would you do it that way? Why not this way? Um, my choice of career when I decided that I was going to become a pastor. I think my dad never said this, but I think there was a bit of a letdown in that. You know, he thought that I was going to go do something else. I, when I was younger, I had visions of uh, joining the military and being an astronaut and all those kinds of things. And, and so I think in a lot of ways, there was this letdown from my dad thinking, pastor, really? I mean, you know, they work one day a week. <laughs> How hard is that? What are you going to do the other six days? Um, so I think that was something that he oftentimes would communicate, maybe not verbally, but through actions, those kinds of things. Um, I think later, uh, when I was in high school, I, this is something that I was thinking as I was driving down here this morning. I... I, rem I received several awards, played sports when I was in, in high school, but I was never the best at anything. You know, I got the hardest worker trophy. I never got the MVP trophy. And all of those kinds of things always fed into this misunderstanding that I had of myself that I wasn't quite good enough. I didn't quite measure up to the standard, the, the idea that I myself had set forward. As that progressed, that underlying problem of original sin, this idea that I am not, and I want you to notice the pronouns that I'm using here, I am not what I am supposed to be. You see, if we had a true biblical worldview, it would be, I am created exactly how I'm supposed to be, right? I am a creation of God, and what I am is what I am. But... So there was always this striving, and then that turned into several, what I have come to understand now as symptomatic of that original issue. Uh, there were other people in my life that were, uh, oftentimes I felt like I was letting down, and when that would happen, um, again, this, these feelings of insignificance would come up. When I was pastoring, uh, I remember... Um, probably three distinct instances 
where I was having conversations with individuals and didn't feel like they were grasping what I was saying. And so instead of moving from the gentle, articulate, trying to help them understand, I became a bully. And I would basically try and bludgeon them with the truth. Uh, and this is the way that it needs to be. And this is why. Kind of the have to be the smartest person in the room. Have you ever been around somebody like that? Well, I would turn into that. Um, and I still, at, at times, see glimpses of that in my life where I feel like, oh, you know, I know what the answer is and that person doesn't. Um, another instance where I was challenged by somebody that was new to the church. Uh, he didn't like the direction that the church was going. It's kind of funny we're going to see these individuals today. Oh, I'm taking Kathy there. Uh, good friends. But he was challenging, didn't like the direction that the church was going. Thought we needed to be more evangelistic. Thought we needed to be reaching out into the community. And I wanted to have a church that was built on discipleship and teaching. And then, then once we were equipped, uh, we would go out as the church and minister. And just didn't catch that. And that caused conflict. And again, that is just one more instance where uh, you just tend to feel like, well, people don't get me. People don't understand me. Uh, and so again, it chips away at this central idea of what is my purpose? Why am I here? Why am I created like this? Um, and I would tell you, in my own life, this ultimately led to an addiction to pornography. To where there was this uh, underlying drive to have something that I could control. And I, and I would tell you, I'm 45 years old, be 46 years old this year, that it probably isn't until the last 10 to 11 years that I have begun to understand this uh, mechanism between how we are in the central formations that happen in us as children and how we view God and how the truth then gets applied to that view in our lives, how that affects our everyday life. That's why I have become so passionate about wanting to teach and do those things. Because I realize uh, that the lessons that I have learned, I want other people to grasp and to understand. And I would tell you that I think that is exactly what the Apostle Paul was doing in this letter. And the reason why I primarily think that he, he is sharing with us the overarching theme of our positional standing, but it really is where the rubber meets the road, is how we apply that. There are three times in the New Testament where Paul is very open about his past. He shares his struggles. Uh, probably the most... Um, personal is in 2 Corinthians, where he shares this idea that he had these incredible revelations from God, and yet it produced in him an arrogance. He calls it a messenger from Satan that was tormenting. So what does all that have to do with Romans chapter 7? Well, I thought uh, in my life I had, you know, pretty much gotten over all of this. I, the truth had changed me, changed my perspective. Well, uh, my world got rocked this week, midweek. Uh, had an individual that uh, talked to me about uh, the class. They've been listening to the podcast, those kinds of things. Said, oh, you know, you're, you're doing a good job with that class. And, of course, my first thought was, well, why would 
I have, you know, why would I be teaching this if I didn't think that I could do a good job? But I, I kind of let that go. But then the, there were several comments that were made, and uh, I, I, I want to be careful in how I share this. Uh, I feel like I can trust you, so. Uh, but the comment was made, well, you know, you've got it kind of easy. You get to listen to Mark Christian and Michael DeFazio and then just take what they say and parrot it. And all of a sudden, in my heart, here comes this lack of significance. Anger, resentment, to the point that I then turned that and lashed out at my daughter and even my son over things that were going on that had nothing to do with this. Why did that happen? Why do those things occur? You know, it's almost like we're playing whack-a-mole. We, we push down this one issue, and here comes another one. Paul's going to tell us. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Um, first, uh, a, so Paul is going to use the word law here, and it gets confusing. So here in this section, he's talking about the Mosaic Code. But he's also going to talk about the law of the spirit of life and the, the law of sin and death. And so it's really important when you see the word law, look at the rest of the words and the context that's around, that is around it. Uh, because he's not always talking about the Mosaic Code. But here, in this specific instance, he is talking about the Mosaic Code. He's saying, okay, so if God has freed us from sin, and grace is now prevailing in our lives, is the law, and Paul has made the point that the law has created in human beings this, this knowledge of sin, is the law sin? Is the law opposed to the way God's original design? Is the law somehow producing this undermining quality in our life, is the law the thing that's breaking the Walmart cart? That's essentially what Paul is asking here. He says, certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Let's talk about coveting for a minute. Why does Paul choose coveting here? I sat and thought about this quite a while this week um, prior to going to Kansas City. Coveting is something that I can do and you will never know about it, right? If you have something, a new house, new car, whatever, I can desire that, want that, and you will never know unless I just outright say it. There's a reason why Paul chooses coveting here. Because again, he's trying to get not to these symptoms of original sin in our lives, but these underlying qualities in our lives, that, that this brokenness about us that causes us to seek ourselves, the, the things that we talked about last, last week, self-preservation, self-seeking, that is sin. And so here, Paul brings up coveting and he says, I would not have known what coveting was and that coveting was wrong if the law said, don't do this. Do not cover. Verse 8. But sin, my sin nature, my brokenness, seizing the opportunity that was afforded it, given it by the, the commandment, the, the commandment to not covet, produced in me 
every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. If there were no speed limit signs on our highways, we would never break, violate that law, would we? In front of our house, there's no speed limit posted. We live on Maverick, so if you don't, it's just a mile north here. If, if you were to leave the church, I got oh, this way. If you leave the church and go up here, there's a big silo and you turn left, that's Maverick Road. You drive down that road all the way, it dead ends into 240. No speed limit sign posted. Recently, somebody came by our, our house and they were wanting to get it posted and get it changed because the actual speed limit on that road is 60 miles an hour. And people do it, let me tell you. They fly up and down that road. But it's not posted. If, if all of life was like that, you know, there were no speed, we could drive 100 miles an hour and never get pulled over. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here, that sin cannot have any consequence until there is a, you can do this and you can't do that. Think about the garden. Why did God tell Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree? But that one. It places in us a choice. And God wants us to love Him by choice. God wants us to worship Him by choice, not by force. And so, in this, I think what Paul is saying is that the law uh, actually stimulated our sin nature to buck against it. Uh, I'm sure you guys have all seen the cartoon. A hole in a fence, and it, the sign that says, you know, do not look here, or something like that. What are we all going to do? We're going to walk up and look. Um, that is exactly the point that Paul is making here. Verse 9, once I was alive apart from, from law. Now this is where Paul is talking about the overarching theme of our positional standing. Once, like in Adam, we were all alive. Sin wasn't dominating every. Uh, thing, every decision, every emotion, every thought. Once I was alive apart from law, uh, excuse me, once, yeah, once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came in Exodus chapter 20, when Moses delivered the law, commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Now, is Paul saying that from Adam to Moses nobody sinned? No, that's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. He's is saying it? that they weren't aware of the laws yet. God hadn't set them down. So therefore they didn't realize that they had sinned. But once the laws were set, then they knew they, they had sinned. But before that, they just thought they were going to life doing what yep. they were supposed to do. They weren't aware of the righteous standards that God has. Yeah. In 5.13 when it says, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. What does that, does that mean they weren't held accountable for that? Yeah, so basically, we, you know, we can't be held accountable for something that we don't know is wrong. And this is where, in my opinion, I think we get terribly confused because is Paul talking about my sin nature? Or is he talking about the symptom that I do that is opposed to God's standard? In that sense, he's talking about the symptom that I do. In that case, the actual infractions of the law, sin, lying, cheating, stealing, uh, murder, cannot be held accountable uh, until such a time as uh, the law comes. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't respond. 
Think of Cain and Abel. That's before the law came. Cain kills his brother. Does God hold him accountable? He does, doesn't he? He held Adam and Eve accountable. Because, remember Romans chapter 1, there is a natural law, a natural understanding of what is right. God created. God created life, therefore life has value. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Paul concludes now this overarching section, and he says, okay, before the law was given, I was wicked, but I didn't understand that I was wicked. When the law came, I now understood the difference between wickedness and righteousness, and what the law actually did is it made me aware of the difference. That's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. They became aware of the knowledge of good and evil. Now I become aware of good and evil, And now I'm held accountable. But now Paul's going to talk about how does that affect me on February 28th or February 29th. Just realized there was a February 29th tomorrow. (laughs) I got a, uh, off the subject, but I got a, I have a hotel reservation for tomorrow night and it said February 29th. There is no February 29th. Anyways, it's a leap year. Okay. So then Paul goes on, verse 13. Did that then, which is good, become death to me? No. In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. I love this statement. Paul says that through the knowledge of that which is wrong and that which is right, sin, our position, our sin nature, all of a sudden became utterly sinful. It became apparent to us that yes, we do these things that are against God's law. We do these things that are opposed to God's character, that are outside of His righteousness. But all of a sudden we begin to realize that the problem is me. I am utterly sinful. Uh, From this thought, theologians have come up with a word we call it total depravity. That mankind is totally depraved. What that means is every single facet of mankind has been affected by sin. The way that we think, the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we think about others, our emotions have become tainted with sin. Our our innate human uh, desires, whether it's uh, sexuality, uh, bodily eating, those kinds of things. All of those things have been affected by sin. That's why places like Fogo de Chao exist. So we can go be gluttons and, and eat. Um, all of these things have become tainted by sin, including our soul or our spirit. The part of us that connects to God. Paul goes on, we know Verse 14, that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Here is Paul talking about the depravity of mankind. The law is spiritual, godlike, but I am not godlike. I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. 
I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do it. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good because the law said I shouldn't do that. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin, my sin nature, my depravity, living in me. Now wait a minute, last week we talked about the fact that sin is dead in us, right? Romans chapter 6, we have been uh, buried with Jesus in baptism. Now in chapter 7, Paul's saying sin is alive. Paul a liar. Uh, I like history. Uh, When Abraham Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation, that didn't free the slaves. It was a government issue that said, from this point, all slaves are going to be free, but all slaves did not automatically become free in that moment. As a matter of fact, it took four more years for that to actually go into effect in practicality, and really it took another hundred years to, maybe longer, if we're honest with ourselves, to actually erase that idea that African Americans were second-class citizens and and tools and uh, all of those kinds of things. What Paul is saying here, while we have been positionally transferred from wickedness into righteousness, we still tend to live in this capacity. Uh, And if you'll recall my uh, comments about Dr. E.V. Hill and his book or his uh, sermon and then Tony Campolo turned that into a book it's Friday but Sunday's coming we live in the Friday the reality of the Christian life is we live in the Friday uh, when Jesus is in the tomb and it looks like all hope is lost there is no possibility of life but we live with the hope of Sunday's coming that reality will be come true and as we begin to believe that and trust ourselves and submit ourselves to that truth, that reality becomes real in our everyday lives. That is exactly where Paul is going to go with us once we get to to chapter 8. As it is, verse 17, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Paul isn't saying that he can never carry it out. He can't do it with consistency. I want to do right. I want to live the way that God wants me to. I want to love and worship Him. I want to love others. And that's what I choose to do and I want to do. But doggone it, my sin nature is there with me. And sometimes it turns its head. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil I do, excuse me, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. That's a pretty harsh reality, isn't it? After chapters 1 through 5, chapter 6, we've been freed, we're no longer slaves. Bethel sings a beautiful song called No Longer Slaves. <coughs> is it a lie? No. Paul is talking about our daily reality. This idea that 
sometimes I think we have, especially in modern Christianity, that once we get saved, God's just going to take away our tendency to go do evil. And now all we have to do is be good. You can't do it. Just like we can't be good enough to save ourselves, we also can't be good enough to live the Christian life. Remember, all of this discussion started way back in chapter 1 when Paul says that the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live continuously submitting them, themselves to the truth of God, and that truth of God will transform them. It's going to take us all the way to the pinnacle of this section, which is in Romans chapter 12, where Paul is going to say, uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All of these things, all of these truths are link, interlinking together to help pull us along into the place where Paul says we need to be, which is how we're supposed to act in chapters 13 through the end of the book. So Paul goes on, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Notice how Paul keeps sprinkling in that word law here. He's not talking about the Mosaic law. Uh, he's talking about the actual reality of our situation. The law that is at work in the members of my body. That just that doesn't make sense for it to be the Mosaic law. And he says, uh, it's waging war against the law of my mind. Again, that doesn't make sense for it to be the Mosaic law. He's talking about the way that we are now wired. Our depravity is the law of my mind. Uh, and making me a prisoner to the, of the law of sin at work within my members. And then Paul, almost in desperation, writes verse 24, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? You sense the hopelessness, the despair? And then Paul pivots and again summarizes chapters 1 through 7 now. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, we, we often say, you know, what's the answer? You ask a little kid, you know, what's the answer to any question in Sunday school? Jesus. It's true here in this sense. In this sense, it's true. So that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Paul says we live in this duality where in our sin nature, where our sin nature is bent towards wickedness, and our mind is going to become bent towards righteousness. And it the issue is going to become which one do we spend time? Which one do we feed? Where do we spend our time? Where do we spend our efforts? Where do we spend our energies? Um, Michael DeFazio, when he was teaching Wednesday night, I sat in his class and he was talking about. The importance of spiritual disciplines, uh, prayer and fasting, um, meditation on the scripture. Because as we meditate on the scripture, that helps to transform our mind so that, so that we do begin to think more like God. But I don't want us to stay, just because I think it's dangerous, 
where we feel like we're just sitting here on this fence. Because the worst thing that can happen to us is we feel like, well, I just have to try harder. What Paul has been saying in this entire section, it doesn't matter how hard you try. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 9, he's going to say it doesn't depend on your effort, your desire, or your effort. It's going to depend on the mercy of God. Salvation ultimately depends on the mercy of God. And so Paul says this is perhaps one of the most unfortunate chapter breaks in all of the New Testament. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Underline that. Circle it. Highlight it. Write it on a card. Put it in your car. Put it on wherever it is that you will see those those words. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, God's view of the wicked is condemned. And Paul is saying, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have entrusted yourself to Him for your eternal salvation, it does not matter what you do. There is no condemnation. You cannot sin yourself out of the grace of God. Now Paul has already talked about, so I'm not, I'm not going to go into this. Paul's already said, well, should we just go ahead and keep on sinning then? He's already talked about that. No, we don't do that because we have died to sin. We have to count ourselves dead to sin. But that truth is freedom. We don't have to earn the favor of God. All we have to do is recognize that the favor of God, the mercy of God, exists for us. And then live our lives as though it's true. So when we screw up, like Mike Smith this week, we don't sit and beat ourselves up and say, oh, I'm a failure. I need to go back and, you know, I need to get rebaptized. I need to go in front of the church. No. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even that thought process is our sinful nature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it comes from Satan. Yes. That. I mean, that, that thought process right there, I'm a screw up. That is a sinful nature thought process from Satan. No, we're created in Christ Jesus. We're created in the image of God. How can we be a screw I mean, that's not true. Yeah. Now, yeah. We did the sinful nature. We allowed the sinful nature to reign in our bodies. Mm -hmm. But even that thought process, that's, yeah. that's a message from Satan. Yep. To keep us stuck sure. in why even try. Yeah. I'm not ever going to be able to overcome, so why even try? That's. Yeah. I've always said that that's the devil's greatest weapon is self condemnation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it keeps everybody stuck. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the best of us. I mean, even people that walk closest to God, even Satan can even bring that evil head of self-condemnation up and, and keep you stuck yep. away from his presence. And it's not God, it's, it's you allowing the devil to keep you stuck there. Yep. It's his in, greatest weapon. In, in fear, then, fear comes from condemnation, right? Yep. When you mess up, when... You're, you realized you messed up with mom and dad. 
you know, the, the worst words I ever heard as a kid, wait till your father gets home. <laughs> that scared me more than anything. Condemnation creates fear. And so uh, Paul is saying here, we don't need to fear condemnation even because of our behavior. Let that be a motivating factor then to dwell on righteousness. Let that be a motivating factor to say, okay, why did I do what I did? And how can I not respond that way the next time? What truth is there available to me to understand who I am so that I can be transformed and respond in a way that is righteous? And I'm thinking it's important to clarify, too, that there is a difference between condemnation and consequence. Yes. And that we know that because we are gods, that he will discipline us because he loves us. And so that is not an excuse to, to think that, again, why God I'm not condemned. I can say, you know, condemnation is that position in our relationship with God. Consequence is part of that position as well because as his children and because of his great love for us and he doesn't want sin to master us yeah. there, there is consequence yeah. to our sin and, and we can accept that gratefully <clears throat> not in shame and hiding in the corner because I'm so terrible but grateful that we have a God who loves us enough to correct us yeah. and I don't disagree with you at all Just that's not what Paul's talking about here and Consequence, he will talk about consequences as if you look at the book of Ephesians. Uh, James talks about consequences quite a bit. Good point. Uh, when we sin, there are consequences of that sin, and, and we must still exist in them. Even when other people sin against us, there are consequences, right? Uh, Paul's going to go on and talk about that in chapter 8. How do we, in that situation, respond in righteousness to Okay, so I want to wrap this up. So next week, we're going to continue on in this, because like I said, this is a terrible break, but I thought this was such an important section to really slow down and go through, because if we do not understand that God's expectation of us is not perfection, let me repeat that. If we don't understand that God's expectation of us is not perfection, we will fail. God provides the perfection. God provides the righteousness through Jesus Christ. We just accept it. And that is essentially the point that Paul is sharing in Romans chapter 7. And then we utilize that information then to say, okay, how do I not give in to my sin nature, but how do I listen to the Spirit of God in those moments? That's what Paul's going to go on to in chapter 8. In reference to what Kathy shared about consequences. I'll close out my story with this. I, I had to go back to my daughter and apologize. Um, you know, and say, look, the way that I acted toward you, uh, there may have been a grain, in truth, a grain of truth in what I was trying to share, but I was responding to something completely different, and I took it out on you. And that was wrong. And I had to ask for her forgiveness. And um, as I was driving this morning, God kind of laid on my heart to do the same thing with you because here's the reason why. I hadn't thought of this until this morning. But I took you guys for granted. 
in that discussion um, about my class and my teaching, it became about me, and it became about a comparison between me and other teachers and the, the size of their classes and who they got. And I thought, God, that's not why I do this. I do this because I feel called to do it and because I feel like you bring the people that need to be here. And so I want to ask your forgiveness for taking you for granted, for, for not recognizing your unique value. Because there are consequences when we sin. We hurt people. And even though you didn't know it, I did. And for that, I ask your forgiveness. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.